Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop, chief executive here, also a proud member. Today's September 18th, and you're with a virtual City Club forum, continuing our virtual City Club forums live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. They are our public media partner, and we're very grateful for their partnership. Clevelanders and City Club members alike are probably familiar with the George Gund Foundation. It was established in 1952, and since then, foundation, the foundation has given some $722 million in grants, making it one of the most significant philanthropic organizations in the state. Full disclosure here, the Gunn Foundation is a financial supporter of the City Club and also IdeaStream, but that's not why we're talking about them and with them today. Here's why. In June of this year, the foundation put out a very public statement. It was titled, What We Believe. And it came at a time when many organizations were putting out statements about their own commitments to end racism. The Gun Foundation statement, however, had been in the works for months. The foundation called out three issues as the explicit focus of their work. Climate change and environmental degradation, entrenched and accelerating inequality, especially racial inequity, and weakened democracy. The statement was written under the leadership of Catherine Gunn, the president of the Board of Trustees for the Foundation. Ms. Gunn is the daughter of American philanthropist Agnes Gunn and the granddaughter of George Gunn II, who founded the Foundation. And she became president of the Foundation in November 2019, succeeding her uncle Jeffrey Gunn, who served in the position for 25 years. She is an Emmy-nominated producer, director, writer, and activist and the founder and director of Aubin Pictures. Her films, which have been featured on PBS, the Discovery Channel, the Sundance Channel, include a documentary about the death of Tamir Rice. And on September 24th, next week, the Cleveland International Film Festival's CIFF Streams will present the Cleveland premiere of Aggie, the documentary that explores the nexus of art, race, and justice through the story of Catherine Gunn's mother's life. Ms. Gunn is a graduate of Brown University, also serves on the board of art, the boards of Art for Justice, Art Matters, and Baldwin for the Arts. She's co-founder of the Third Wave Foundation, which works to help young women and transgender youth. And today we're going to talk with Catherine Gund about the foundation's statement about how their work is challenging the traditional narrative of philanthropy, and probably also about that movie. So as in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them into the program. Catherine Gund, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me in the middle of COVID, and I love Cleveland. And even though I'm not there physically, I'm there in spirit. It is my home. It is, it is your yeah, an ancestral home and also uh, the home of so much of your work and so much of your impact. It's really great to see you, Catherine. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'd really like to start with the statement, uh, that the what we believe statement um, that the, the George Gunn Foundation put out in June. Uh, why was it important to put that statement out? We had been working on it for a long time and it came out at an interesting moment because 
people were issuing statements in response to the new visibility where so many people had assumed that the manifestations of the problems in this country were not lethal. And in fact, they were and are, and more people are coming to terms with that. So it came out at kind of a critical juncture, but the reason we had been working on it was because to do the kind of work we really, that the times demand, is to do work that is more collaborative, that is in relationship um, among people. And I think it was our effort to start or continue that process, deepen that process by coming up with a shared language and coming into a notion of what we believe and being able to really solidify these three important areas that would then transcend and interact with everything we did. Um, was really important to us. And we had an ideal example in Say Yes Cleveland because, and that's written into the statement as you'll see on the website, as, the, as a perfect example of something that does address each of those issues. We don't have a uh, one program area called democracy. We want democracy to be throughout. We don't have one program area called racial justice and equality. That's something that touches every single thing we do. Um, climate change, of course, we do have a, an, an environmental focus on a program area, but climate change is something that also has to appear in every other area. And it was important for us to make that a clear gesture and offering to the community and to our current grantee partners and potential future grantee partners to say, this is what we're thinking about what we do. Does that resonate with you? And because we need them more than they need us. That's an interesting way of putting it, that, that the Gun Foundation needs its grantees more than the grantees need the Gun Foundation. Doesn't always feel like that on the grantee side. <laughs> um, but why do, you say, why do you put it that way? I do believe that if we are, and it goes to King, to so many people have talked about the, you know, philanthropy is something that only exists because of economic inequality. And if we actually are trying to dismantle the, the structure and the systems of economic inequality, the drivers that create poverty and create racial injustice, we need to actually put philanthropy out of business as we've known it. And that I would say is traditional philanthropy. And I hope that the Gunn Foundation is part of this um, work that so many people are doing to really change that. Yeah, a friend of mine who works in philanthropy, I was talking to him earlier today, and uh, be, and I called him specifically because he had said something that totally reframed philanthropy for me, not as noblesse oblige or some sort of, you know, old world uh, concept, but he said that, that it's really re-gifting taxpayer dollars. That's right. That's another reason that the grantees um, uh, are really our partners, whether we own up to that or not. A lot of people will say that, you know, your money, once you have your money, it's yours. You can give it away. You can give it away to who you want, but it's actually tax deductions, tax system that has gone into that money. It's not, in fact, just ours. We have not only made that off the labor of other people, but the whole tax structure has allowed it to exist that way. And I would say that, you know, philanthropy to me, and you and I have talked about this, that to me, philanthropy really is a debt 
that is owed to society, that it's, it's not um, a chair, you know, it gets treated like charity, like generosity. And Darren Walker from the, Gun, from the Ford Foundation has spoken at length about moving from generosity to justice, that, it, that if we are functioning out of a place of generosity, charity, we're never gonna undo the systems, the root causes of the problems that we say we're seeking to solve. We're talking with Catherine Gunn today here at your City Club Friday Forum. You can join us with a question to 330-541-5794, or you can tweet your question at the City Club, and we will work it in. Catherine, as you know, is president of the Board of Trustees of the Gunn Foundation. Um, Catherine, I wonder if you would talk about your introduction to the Gund Foundation, because I know that when you and I first talked, I made this assumption that you were sort of always familiar with philanthropy, and you corrected me on that. Well, philanthropy, I was definitely always familiar with, and I will back up to say it was the Gun Foundation in specific that I was unaware of, mm -hmm. um, which uh, I frankly can't believe. It seems like a m magical, mystical story. But my mother is the only one of the six siblings who had never served on the board. And although she is super philanthropic, so philanthropy wasn't a stranger to me, um, my whole life I watched uh, how she sort of embodied and has grown so much in the kinds of philanthropy and the, and the way she conducts her philanthropy. Um, but I had been right out of college involved with the Australia National Lesbian Action Foundation, and I was on their board, and that was really my first experience in a kind of, it, it wasn't a giving circle, but it was a very multiracial, cross-class, um, it was a very diverse group who was deciding how and where to spend money that had been given by many different people. And then I served on the founding board of the Sister Fund, with which Helen Hunt started, um, who also started Women Moving Millions and the New York Women's Foundation, actually with my mother many decades ago. Um, and then I had started a, a fledgling at the time philanthropy called the Third Wave Foundation, whose focus was on young women between 18 and 35 who fall through even more cracks than women in general. If you look at the percentage of philanthropy dollars that go to women, it's very small and it was even smaller to this group at such a pivotal moment in their lives. And so we, I was doing all of that and someone in a sister fund meeting said, oh yeah, um, I was talking to the program director from the Gund Foundation the other day and I was like, the what? <laughs> and it was so mortifying. It was I was like 24 years old or 25 years old, and I had literally never heard one word about it. And so the, I immediately um, dedicated myself to, to, to changing that and jumping forward many years once I was on the board, instituted a, a family tour. I think some people may be familiar with um, our sort of site visits that we do in the summers and go around and make sure that the board members have get to go out to the locations of grantee partners and meet with grantee partners, see them at work, see what they're up to. Um, and we created it so that all family members could come and I brought all of my children, but all four of my children came to the board meetings at the Gun Foundation as babies, were running around watching Sesame Street and Cindy's office, you know, they were all there from the beginning. And, and you know, I was the first third generation board member brought on and have since, I think there are, I've got now five cousins, one sibling, um, who are now on the board. So it's a lot more of our generation and it's an opportunity to really expand our notion of family and how we integrate into being uh, the offspring of the offspring of George Gunn. 
Does the do, is your philosophy that you articulated earlier about about philanthropy as paying a debt is that widely shared, or did you have to make a case? Um, that's an interesting question. I would say that we're certainly in a process of a more shared language. Making what we believe statement was integral to that, and I think a big, big first step. Um, there's a lot of changes on the horizon just because of both our democracy and society, and then the city of Cleveland, and then the you know physical structures of the Gun Foundation. So there's a lot that's coming in. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity. I think people are looking for transformation, not transaction, especially some of the more progressive thinkers around philanthropy, people who are understanding that if we do want to make change and allow everyone to participate with their full selves, everyone in society, treat everyone like you would want to be treated. I'm not even a religious person, and I can't believe you know that people claim to be religious and then will go and steal children, babies, and separate them from their families at the border. I mean, there's just some unthinkable things. And I think the more people realize what is going on, the more dedicated they are to trying to find a systemic solution. So I would say that, you know, we do have the benefit of being at core a family and our Cleveland trustee members always comment on that. And it's not about um, not ruffling feathers or not disagreeing, um, although it may have been like that 25 years ago when I joined, I was very comforted by the fact that people wanted everyone to get along and it had gone for decades like that. I do think now that there is a way that forcing people to do the repair, to do the listening, to do the apologizing, to to spend time understanding the roots of what created this foundation, um, that that has put us on the same page. And I would say we definitely want to move forward together. Can you say more about the roots of what created the wealth? Well, I think it came up for me um, a lot. When I joined about 25 years ago, there there was a question because I was the first third generation board member. I um, every All the siblings in my family were born in Cleveland by a, a, a fluke. I was born in Australia, but, I, but we are from Cleveland. The other cousins were never even lived in Cleveland. So I went to Malvern, you know, we, we lived in Cleveland for a while. Um, and although all of our parents had been born and raised in Cleveland, my family was the only one with any vestige of the actual living there left. And so it did raise, I think, predictably a question about, do we keep it in Cleveland? This is, you know, this family. And do we then recognize that some of us are in the Bay Area and some of us are in Massachusetts and we're all over the place? Do we split it up? Do we move it as a whole? So we had to entertain those. And it was a really fruitful conversation because I think it recommitted all of us to the, the knowledge that the foundation needs to stay in Cleveland. It's never been raised again as an issue, as, as our grantees will be happy to <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, everybody, um, everybody was suddenly <laughs> on the edge of their seats. Yeah, um, but I think it was a good process because people needed to understand that's where the money was extracted, that's where the money was made, that money belongs to Clevelanders, that there's a real belief that Cleveland is a dynamic, incredible place, not just because it's a perennially purple state, but because it has knowledges and solutions and geographic access and a history that can be a model for all other places in the country. And because we're large, but we're small by many measurements, especially these new 
tech philanthropists who are giving away a billion dollars in a week. Or the, um, or the, or the former wives of tech philanthropists. We, yes, thank you. And we, we love her. I'm not criticizing her. I'm just saying it does make me feel like we're smaller potatoes. But our smaller potatoes are big potatoes in a local situation. And so it's all the more reason to keep the, the foundation in Cleveland. And just to uh, sort of clarify, when you say wealth was extracted, um, that's sort of through industrial businesses and the fi- and financial businesses that founded that the gun foundation or the gun family and your grandfather were were involved in that is, is sort of explicitly made possible by the american form of capitalism that's right and by the tax structure um you know and and I was saying to one of my colleagues here in the office this morning that, you know, some of these things are things that small children can figure out. You know, when you have them do the exercise where you have 10 chairs and you have one person lay across nine and then nine people try to get on one chair, a child will tell you everyone should get a chair. You know, everyone has a body, everyone needs a chair, a place to sit. One person does not need nine chairs. It's very simple. So, I mean, to me, the extraction isn't specific to, to my grandfather, George Gunn. Um, it's just saying that the, the structures are in place, that we have to actively acknowledge what's going on and not blame people or put the onus on um, individual families and, and, and workers to say that it's their fault that they don't have billions of dollars. It's not. It's structured into our system. And we have to acknowledge that if we're going to ever change it. I would encourage people to, uh, to check out the What We Believe statement. It's a, an important piece of writing, not just if you're a, a grant seeker, um, but uh, if you'd like to understand more about the sort of direction that philanthropy is taking. Catherine Gund is our guest today. She's the president of the board of trustees of the George Gund Foundation. And um, Catherine, do you find yourself in, uh, you've mentioned other philanthropists and other people, professional philanthropists, people who work in the industry, Darren Walker of the Ford Foundation and others. Are you finding yourself drawn into conversations with colleagues at other family foundations who are, or peers at other family foundations who are trying to figure out how to move from traditional family philanthropy, which is I, we give some money to the charities that I really like or the charities on whose boards I sit, to what you are doing, which seems to me to be practicing a form of uh, justice-based philanthropy. I am in constant conversation with people who are trying to understand these um, challenges. And I would say that I wasn't always... Um, but the, uh, the founding about five years ago during the Occupy Wall Street movement of the Solidaire Network has been very, you know, transformative for me um, because it is a community of primarily wealthy uh, activists and donors and people with more money than they need, however they define their wealth, um, who are really looking to address some of these core issues and to figure out a way in community with the leaders of the movements, so with social justice movement leaders um, as as peers and as teachers and as coaches and as partners, and how do we make some of these changes? So many of them are on family foundations, um, and there's different ways that families are doing it. There's going to be a lot of things that we'll be able to explore in terms of ways to integrate more Cleveland leadership even into our own um, board structure, into the structure of the organization. So I think 
You know, I think there are, there are lots of models and people who know about philanthropy know these different, you know, there's a spend down model. There's been a really incredible response during um, COVID and the uprisings, I think, that hopefully will continue afterwards in a lot of areas in criminal justice reform and tax and health. But in philanthropy, one of them is that we signed on and responded with many foundations to a 10% um, payout. And what we're required is this minimal 5% by the government, which is to say, we've gotten all the tax deduction we need and can get, and then the money can just sit there and the tax deduction is on the back of the taxpayers and then they don't necessarily have access to the money. So it's an imperfect system for sure, but, but we've always given, or not always, but recently we've given more than the 5%, closer to six, 7%. Um, but right now, a lot of us dedicated to giving 10% right now this year because of the crises that are upon us. Um, we can't necessarily stay at 10% unless we do wanna be a spend down. And for all the reasons I just stated, we, we don't want the foundation to disappear. Kate, I want to give you an opportunity as well to talk about your mother and the documentary film that uh, Cleveland International Film Festival is streaming on their uh, is is premiering uh, or, or Cleveland premiering on their um, on their streaming service next week on the twenty fourth. The film is just called Aggie. Um, tell us more. Um, this is a film that is about her, but my purpose in making it was so much broader. You know, I almost use our little love story as a platform to introduce and engage people with uh, a variety of conversations around philanthropy, around women's leadership, around criminal justice reform, and certainly around the arts. And I would say that what I really wanted was to just put so much art in the film that people realize that it's a portal and it's the portal through which my mother sees the world. And as Ava DuVernay says at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film, um, I asked her what the relationship, the filmmaker Ava DuVernay, who made the 13th, that inspired my mother to sell uh, Liechtenstein painting and dedicate $100 million towards uh, ending mass incarceration. And Ava, I said to Ava, what is the relationship between art and justice? And she said, they're the very same thing. They're both about something that doesn't exist yet, seeing something that doesn't exist, knowing that it could, and working towards making it so. And to me, that was so simple of an understanding of what justice is. It's, you know, we, the sad part is that it means we don't have justice yet, but we know that to be true. So, you know, what is justice? We look at it and we work towards it. It's the arc bending. And that's what art is, that people have these blank canvases or blank pages, and they have to imagine what to put forward. So I made the movie because Aggie started the Art for Justice Fund. I would never have made a documentary about her. Otherwise, I, it was it's a very intimate, close, insane thing to do. Um, it's It's been wonderful, but the Art for Justice Fund really allowed me the opportunity to draw people's attention to this action, to this propaganda of the deed, of uh, what she did, did something. She didn't talk about it. She just went and did something. And I feel like the difference, you know, Edgar Villanueva, who wrote Decolonizing Philanthropy, talks about this, but I, you know, it's, he says that it's money, um, 
that money is not the master's tool. It's the intention behind the money that's creating the problems. And for me, her sale of the Liechtenstein was so beautiful because there's a lot of collectors who give money. There's a lot of philanthropists who collect art, but nobody before had said, my intention behind selling this piece of art is to end mass incarceration, to invest in the imagination. And so one day there was a painting, the next day there was a painting, it didn't get lost, and a hundred million dollars for ending mass incarceration. It was a miracle. It was a, an alchemical miracle to me. An alchemical miracle. It's <laughs> the, um, it was a, a, a big news moment and came as a surprise to many in the art world because so often the art world is seen as separate and this kind of this That's other right. ethereal world in which people are, are trading uh, extraordinary objects for vast sums of money that generally stay in that other world. That's true. And I think that this is starting a different dialogue. And uh, partly because it wasn't just that moment that resonates or, or con continues through the life of the project. It's a five-year spend down, which is to say it's $100 million. We give away $20 million a year so that all the money goes into the field where it's needed. We're not going to create an endowment. We don't want to be fighting to end mass incarceration in 20 years. We want it to be over. We want the change to happen. So the idea behind it is also to bring artists and advocates together so that they're solving the problems together because we know that narrative change is what is gonna change our society, not policy. Policy is important, but it can't do it without all of the culture change around it. How much of an influence was your mother on you and your and your pursuits, your your beliefs about philanthropy, the direction that you've pushed the foundation? That's such a good question because it totally depends on the day <laughs> that you ask. Um, so are some you days, and your mother getting you know, along right now? I say we are, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which is probably one of the reasons I'd say we're different. So some days I say, oh, we're so similar because I'm looking at certain aspects and other days we're, we're completely different. I mean, she, she was, she was, born in the late 30s. I mean, how could we not be com completely different? Um, but, you know, one thing I learned making the movie that I really appreciate is that she is so willing to grow and that she wasn't stagnant in this position that she lived in when she became a parent. You know from being a parent, they, they, they think you have all the answers, even though they'll challenge you, and they want you to have all the answers because it gives them more stability. And, um, and I think with her, there was something, maybe it was in me or in her, but I did not think she had all the answers. And I was very explicit about that. And instead of telling me that I was wrong, she listened to me and she changed. And I think that's what I try to pull out in the moments where I talk about the AIDS crisis, which we really shared going through that crisis together um, and how we responded was empathetically and emotionally very similar. What we actually did was different from what our different roles could be, what our different journeys were. Um, but also, you know, then having a multiracial family, she was raised obviously in a white family in a very segregated um, Northern suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and now she lives in New York City, which is, you know, if we could get out on the street and see anybody, is a super diverse, beautiful environment to be in. And her inner own family, she has um, black grandchildren. And I think those things really, for someone who's so open 
um, and empathetic because of art and because she knows there's other answers and other questions. She was really open to learning and she always, she keeps learning. So I hope that's something I have in common with her is, is the humility um, to know that I don't have the answers and the, and, the, and the wisdom to know I don't have to pretend I do. Um, <laughs> yeah. We're talking with Catherine Gunn. She's president of the Gund Foundation, which was founded by her grandfather. And uh, she is, uh, apart from that, though, apart from changing, helping to change philanthropy, not changing philanthropy single-handedly, she is a filmmaker, has produced a documentary and directed a documentary, many documentaries, but the most recent one is called Aggie. It's about her mother. We were just talking about that. You can join our conversation at the City Club Friday Forum with a text to 330-541-5794. Just send your question that way, 330-541-5794. Or if you're on Twitter, tweet it at the City Club, and we'll be delighted to work it into the program. I'm going to take a quick moment to thank your colleague on the Gun Foundation board, Mark Joseph, whose idea this forum was. So thanks to Mark Joseph, who teaches at Case Western Reserve University. I'll Um, get him back for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've also been trying to get him to come and speak at the City Club Friday forum. He keeps putting me off for about two years now. Um, So uh, getting to some questions from our community, we appreciate uh, how the Foundation's recent statement focuses on justice issues in both civil and criminal contexts. This is from our friend at the Legal Aid Society of Greater Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um, can you comment on how this holistic view is important if we want real reform to reduce poverty and promote racial equity? That's a very big question. I think I'm just going to dive into that on um, voting because it's so much in our moment right now. Um, but you know, my work and my focus in the criminal justice reform movement has really taken me to take a broader helped me make a broader analysis of of how this the functions of like voter suppression actually manifest. And so one of those to me is when um, people see voter suppression as being on that day that they've moved the voting booths or they they've you know told someone they need a, a identification or something like that. But if you step back and realize the culture of fear and distrust that is is uh, forced upon us at this time, both in the in the civic and criminal, they're using the criminal to create civic problems is kind of my answer to that. So that in Tennessee, he said very explicitly um, during the uprisings, he said he changed, he passed a law and changed the um, changed it so that all the protesters who were camping out on the, on the, in front of the city hall were then uh, convicted or charged with felons, felonies. And if, and if you're a felon in Tennessee, you can't vote. And so he basically, and he said that, he said, if I make what they're doing a felony, they won't be able to vote. That's voter suppression. It's not that day having to stand in the heat. I mean, it's also that day having to stand in the heat for three hours. But I think that, you know, when we look at how that functions as a whole, you know, this has been a huge focus of ours in Florida with Florida rights restoration. The people said they wanted formerly incarcerated, people who'd been convicted of felons to be allowed to vote. That was 1.4 million people. And you know that the right wing wasn't going to stand for that. So they created all these hoops and loopholes and problems. And they said that everyone had to pay off all their fines and fees before they could vote, which was basically a poll tax, which is supposed to be gone 
by now. Um, and I think that, you know, we have to look at this now in North Carolina, it just passed that you don't have to pay your fines and fees to be able to vote. So this is what we were saying in the, in the green room beforehand is, you know, the sort of good news, bad news days, like it goes up and it goes down. And, you know, I know we're moving forward, but there's so many slaps in the face as we go. Um, I don't know if that answers. I'm not sure. Do you have an idea of what they were going for in the question? Well, I know that Legal Aid Society has spent a lot of time promoting uh, and advocating for a new law that establishes a right to counsel in housing court, for instance, mm -hmm. um, where, as you know, I think because you've probably read Matthew Desmond's Evicted, um, mm -hmm. as have many in our community, thanks to One Community Reads, that um, if you don't have representation in housing court, and the and the landlord is required to bring representation. You're outmatched. the 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 court is not a level playing field, and um, so that has is one way. And if if evictions and and housing policy is discriminating against communities of color and communities of poverty, which are often kind of overlapping communities, um, then that is one area in which civil law matters as much or in different ways but equally significantly as criminal law and criminal justice reform. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think there are a lot of issues of that and I'm really thrilled um, of, that, of that overlap. I'm thrilled with our newest program director, Alicia Washington, who really is focusing on our, our vibrant growth and democracy and inclusive economy work at the foundation. And I know that she's focused on housing and workforce and transportation and you know entrepreneurship all kinds of ways that that democracy will manifest in the civic realm um, but I would say that there are just so many examples you know that's that's not even a question what you were saying about housing that's the example I would say another example is the is the US post office and people think you know that's just about mail-in ballots and you know maybe they're smart enough to realize that you know veterans count on all of their prescriptions coming through the mail but people there's many reasons why people who are incarcerated need the mail service and it's not just to stay importantly connected to their families and their children and to the outside but they have to file um, their own motions in many cases like you're saying in the housing court they have to file their own motions and they they have to get them in at certain times and if they can't count on the mail um, there's all kinds of examples of that. Plus, of course, uh, people who are charged with felonies and are awaiting trial legally are allowed to vote and they'd have to vote by mail and if the mail's not coming. So there's huge problems. You know, all of these things are so interconnected. Uh, another question for you, uh, writers such as Anand Girdardis and Edgar Villanueva, both of whom I should mention spoke at the City Club, uh, have often critiqued philanthropy as undemocratic at its core. How do you respond to that critique? And then here's a sort of additional additional thought that the, the Gun Foundation may be working with partners in the community, but is still often directive more than it is responsive. Absolutely. I would totally agree with that. Um, and that is not to criticize myself, my fellow board members, or certainly not the staff. I think we're, we're, we are looking to change, but that is the fundamental problem of philanthropy. There was a time, you know, in the 60s where um, a huge influx of money and philanthropy during the civil rights movement went to SNCC and to the Congress for Racial Equity for CORE, went to the NAACP. Um, 
millions and millions of dollars. And I think we're seeing that again now, which isn't just to say that getting the money out the door is the answer, but I think learning how to do that in a useful way. We take criticism, I take criticism really seriously, and I know Dave does, all of the program directors do. I think we live in such a bubble as philanthropists, no matter what. I mean, we're so protected. Nobody's ever telling us the truth. Um, everyone's eternally grateful when they look at us. Um, you know, the, the power imbalance is, is a huge challenge and we're looking for ways to, to, to address that. Um, it, you know, in this, it's, are we gonna be able to do it? I, I don't know that it's even possible. I think it's an imperfect system and we need to sort of engage with the issues and just be really honest about what we can achieve and what we can't. But I want the person who wrote that question, I'm glad they wrote it, and to say, you know, we wouldn't be doing anything right if we weren't getting criticism. So we need, you know, we need we're going to take that to heart. We need more criticism. I, then I sort of stopped thinking, do I, <laughs> do I need more criticism? <laughs> do I really want? But um, yeah, but well, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thought uh, experiment and perhaps more than just an experiment to to ask if you were to reinvent your processes for grant giving and your policies for spending, what mm-hmm. would the Gund Foundation be doing? How would it, well, you know, you have these sort of structures and you have a board and the board is mostly family with some community members um, and you've expanded the number of community members who sit on the board, but there's still just a few individual voices that are meant to be yeah. representative, but, but really are very subjective, right? And no matter how, and so, I mean, if you were to, to blow it up and start over, I mean, what would that look like? I realize I'm totally putting you on the spot. You um, are. We're working on it is all I can say. But, you know, I mean, there are a lot of opportunities that are coming up. I think it's no secret that um, Sherwin-Williams and the, and the Tower are undergoing changes. We're going to be moving at some point. Um, but staying in Cleveland. That's, but staying in Cleveland, <laughs> yes. Thank you. Um, but but not staying necessarily in downtown Cleveland, hopefully in a neighborhood in a much expanded, accessible place that's really um, shared by the community and that we access as as other people will access that as well. I think there, you know, there's without just addressing sort of little tiny band-aids, you know, like we do are entertaining how to bring more of a Cleveland presence onto the board, how to engage with the grantee partner voices at, at a higher, more powerful level. I mean, once you get into the nuts and bolts of it, there's a million tiny questions. You know, why do you get to do it and not the other grantees? Like, why should you be the one on the board? I know you want to be, but I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying that, you know, like it does. If I was on the board, you wouldn't be funding the Cleveland, the city club. So like that would be well, problematic. Or, or not. I mean, in Solidaire, we really try to look at these things. Like, what does a different kind of solidarity, not charity model look like? Like a truly horizontal model that, you know, has bumps in the road and has variations, but that is guided, driven by the leaders in the field, by the people who are closest to the problems, by the people who have the most use, uh, you know, the most to benefit from the solutions, who know the solutions because they're living in the problems. They're not just making it up. But I think there's, you know, there's so many different ways to just kind of turn your mind around. And I love both um, the examples that, that you gave. And I think those, their books are really important. And one thing it makes me think, for example, is like when, um, when Amazon was going to move to Queens, 
And, you know, I live in New York City. I'm in New York City right now, downtown. And the idea of them moving to Queens, they were going to get a $3 billion tax break. $3 billion. And then, you know, Soros is going, okay, and then, you know, I'll, um, I'm going to fix up the transportation system in the city. And it's so, you know, you've got to get out of the head that you have the solutions. Here he is saying, I know better than the people. And what he should have done is said, I'm going to pay my $3 billion in taxes. So the city finally has enough money to create a good transportation system to fix up the subways and the public transportation so and the buses so that people can get around safely and efficiently. Instead of saying, you know, I'm going to send my kids to private school and start a charter school and do this and that because your school system's terrible, even though I just took three billion dollars out of your coffers instead of saying all these people elected our mayor you let him have the tax money that you owe him and we will figure out how to create a better school system if we had the kind of money that people are trying to get out of paying i mean the new jersey i don't know if i should bring it up but i think the new jersey tax um, initiative that looks like it's going through right now is amazing i can't believe it's taken so long to say that we will tax the 3% of the richest people in this state. And it will give so much money and services to the other 97% whose taxes will all go down. It's a no brainer. Where so you... yes, they're challenges, but if you want, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just gonna, I was just gonna remind our, our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're hearing from Catherine Gund, president of the board of directors of the Gund Foundation. And she's also a filmmaker and activist. And, uh, and does a whole lot of other things as well. I'm Dan Malthrop. You're with the City Club Friday Forum. If you have a question, text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club and we'll work it into the program. Kat Gund, the foundation has often been willing to fund policy work when other funders have not. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that's the case and how this evolved in your family's history? I would love to because that has all happened during the time that I've been on the on the board and you know there's a lot of sort of fables and stories about how if you teach a person to fish they will not starve and if you give them a fish they're hungry the next day you know or the babies the dead the babies coming down the river I don't know if you've heard that one you can stand at the river and pull the babies out of the river so they don't drown or you can go to the top of the river and stop whatever's making them all end up being thrown in the river. Um, and so, That's you know, policy- That's just a really weird metaphor. <laughs> it's a weird one, okay. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, maybe that wasn't the one I should have chosen. But the idea behind it is that, you know, direct service is going to help one person one day. That's a charity model. If you say you're hungry, here's, here's a sandwich. That's very different than saying, okay, we need to make sure that there are structures in place that people don't go hungry, that people aren't living on the streets, that people have shelter, that there's affordable housing. We have to change the system that's put that person there in the first place and not blame them for that situation by giving them some charity, but actually own our, our role in it by having created a system that creates the problem. So, you know, Marsha Egbert, our brilliant program director um, at, at Gund can totally parse a budget like no one else can. And she can tell you how much to the dollar we leverage by changing a policy that then, you know, creates a, 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 a some part of the state budget that gets more money to the thing than we could have if we put our $100,000 in there. Instead, we put $100,000 to something that will bring in a billion dollars. So you're going upriver. 
Um, why do you yeah, think... We're running up to the top. Stopping, stopping <laughs> why... the weird person from throwing babies in the river. Why do you think more philanthropic organizations don't do that? It's a great question. Um, and if I didn't just say that it was kindergartners who could see what you should be doing and, and why don't grownups figure that out. It's, it's about comfort, I think. It's about comfort and, you know, you have to be comfortable in the messiness of it all. And, you know, the first question that you read was someone saying, this doesn't always work. The power isn't shared. I don't feel included. You're not doing enough. You're, you're not achieving the goals that you're saying you want to. And I would rather have a goal that I haven't achieved yet than to set my bar really low. And I think what, what has traditionally happened is people pay for museums, like my family, pay for parks, which, you know, if they're in John's, Mitterholzer's program area could be very, very important to communities that need access to fresh air and room to play. Um, but, you know, they pay for things that ultimately benefit them. They, they, they give money, who was it who said, you know, Harvard and these big universities are basically like hospitals that only allow well people in. You know, it's like they give money to a place where they went to school, not to where the poor kids are going to school. Like, why aren't they, if they really are doing what they, if they're walking the walk, then they would be giving money to make other people's schools as good as the ones that they went to. So I don't know the answer, but I think it has a lot to do with comfort. And that's why I'm really optimistic about this moment right now, because I, I, I do feel excited, even though it's so traumatic and painful and, and, and horrible for so many people, that there is this sense that somebody might hear or see or do something about what's going on. And there's such a focus on the local. And, you know, there's like a, it's like a, there's like a new consciousness. It's like there's a, you know, a way that hopefully people will see they don't need to hoard their money that, you know, if we're taking care of everyone, they would be taken care of, too. Another question for you. Uh, how can philanthropy support black leaders who work within national organizations on local issues? Oftentimes we are seen as separate, but this is actually our community as well. Um, do you mean, do you think that it's our community, meaning Cleveland is the community for a national leader? Or you know, that a it's Cleveland not my leader? question, so <laughs> you can take it um, however you want. I mean, I do think we have to support black leadership across the board, local, national. I think that um, a lot of the national black leadership has been very focused on how do we relate on statewide, regionally, locally? How do we make sure that there is some synergy and some um, ability for support um, while not focusing on a single leader? It's been a beautiful part of the um, Black Lives Matter movement since the very beginning and all three of the women who are the founders would say we are a leaderful movement and they you know people have constantly tried to pick either even one of them or all three of them and say they are the leaders of this movement and in all of their geniusness the three of them have all been able to say I know this this is what I'm doing and there are so many people I'm working with and they're also doing it and I think that's going to be what maybe can inspire some philanthropists more philanthropists because some are really stepping up right now to support 
support and really resource the movement for black lives that, you know, to not say, oh, you've got, you know, two million dollars. That's a lot good. And then go give a place like the ACLU or something that does great stuff, but has lots and lots of money and visibility instead to say we actually believe that organizations with black leadership can be those big organizations and to put the money into them. And I should give a shout out and want to give a shout out to Mackenzie Scott, who used to be married to Jeff Bezos and just gave away $1.6 billion to 116 organizations, which you do the math, some of them are gonna be able to function for a while without focusing on fundraising all the time. I mean, that's the other side of it, right? Is that as philanthropists, we don't wanna create undue reporting and evaluations and deadlines. And we should be able to just talk to people and hear what they're up to and see what they're up to and listen to them on their Zooms and in their meetings and read their report, you know, read their writings and be able to make a judgment that way to, to share resources with them. Um, but I think that there's, you know, there really is a great sense of people stepping up. Susan Sandler just gave $200 million a few days, last week, I think, to also environmental but racial justice organizations. I mean, there's just, there's incredible, um, visioning happening right now in our field. And I hope that those people who are not stepping up and not speaking are really listening closely and will start making their moves. Here's a, another question for you, Kat Gund. I appreciate the example of how private enterprise can be helpful to the future of public transportation in New York City. I think there's some irony there. What role can philanthropy plan in play in engaging the business community in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County to better fund public transit in our region? especially given how much return on the investment public transit is proven to bring. Absolutely. That is brilliant. And I hope Alicia is on the call and just wrote that one down. I know, in fact, she's probably already all over that question. Um, she really is somebody she, she may who have understands asked the question this for much. <laughs> that would be funny because she's the one with the answers to that. I mean, in, in, in sort of in true form, I defer to my team, to the to the the program directors and the and the president of the foundation who are based in Cleveland, who have been doing this work on these levels in the policy, in the budget, with the organizations and the infrastructure and the business community. Um, you know, I think that that's the kind of question that Alicia's really focused on is how do we create transportation so that people aren't isolated. I mean, one of my big um, efforts some years ago started being on food justice and you know and and food deserts and places where people couldn't just walk walk to get food where they had to either have a car or get on public transportation which also may have been a walk away so you know it touches into every part it's a great question and it's a great project it's a good challenge and i i think we're up for it i don't have all the answers but we're on that one yes well, it's one of those, it's an interesting thing because by law, the Gun Foundation cannot give money directly to the Rapid Transit Authority, the Transit, the Greater Cleveland Transit Authority, right? So right. Um, so then you're, uh, you have to do policy work. You have to fund the policy well, work in order to make that happen. or movement building, or movement building work. Uh -huh. We can support, you know, the Ohio Organizing Collaborative who has a whole part or, you know, group that's working on the, on the transit. Um, which I used to call the rabbit 
when I was little, <laughs> living in Cleveland. I was like, the rabbit's coming. Um, but the rapid transit system, and um, and they and they can then structure what does the community need, and if they if they're supported enough and resourced enough, they can appear at the town halls. They can put pressure on the city. They can work with the business community, and they're the ones who can help design a system that works for them. So I would always end with um, supporting a movement. In addition to increasing the percentage of funds for grant awards, Catherine Gund, will there be any changes in the types of agencies that you will be funding or that the foundation will be funding? Um, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of changes that we'll be making, um, but I think they're there, I wouldn't be able to answer like what the outcomes will be because I'm changing, I'm trying to change how we make the decisions, who makes the decisions, mm -hmm. um, when the decisions are made. So I would say yes. I would say that, you know, people should, would, would recognize that there'll be more multi-year funding, not just like this two years. You know, there's some organizations we've been funding for 20 and 30 years. Like why make that person write a, grant application every, like if we really believe that they're good and that they're doing the work they're saying and that they can manage to, to make some change that we can't do from our seats, that's the work, that's your work. And so I would say, you know, we should be giving five-year grants. Say, great, here's your money for five years, go do what you're doing. We don't take as much evaluation and analysis of our work as we do expect them to do. So we'll give people money and say a year later, how to go. It's like, I'm here asking you guys to bear with me for many years. I've been on the board for a while, granted not in the same leadership position. And I've tried to do what I can do. And who knows what I can do, given that I like to work so collaboratively and we all are going to move along. And I'm asking you guys to give us a few years to keep working on this and keep figuring out more and more. And so for in that, I would say I'd like to give our grantee partners more time to figure out their work. I think I just heard about 12,000 people pick up their pens and start writing, ask Gund for a five-year grant. For five years. I know. Dave's going to kill me afterwards. I literally, I called him last week. I was like, is there anything I really can't say? He was like, oh, God, where well, should I start? You know, as we're, as we're getting to the end of the hour with you, Catherine Gund, I, I wanted to come back to this, these commitments to racial equity, to climate change, and to democracy. I think we've spent a fair bit of time talking about climate change explicitly and racial equity explicitly, but I wanted to circle back a little bit to democracy as an explicit giving area or an explicit area where you're focusing and, and threading through everything that you're doing. We only have a couple of minutes left here, but... Um, and, uh, and an entire nation, entire like 200 year republic to save. So go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think we're, we're definitely at a crossroads or a reckoning or an awakening or however you wanna look at it. I think that we have to follow, I mean, Edgar Villanueva has a list of um, steps and you know, to decolonize to decolonize ourselves, our spaces, our philanthropy in particular. And I think that repair is a big part of that. It's the grieving, it's the listening, um, but it's really about saying, how do I relate to you in a way that makes my investments meaningful and makes us have a long-term sustainability to the good that we can have. And one of my dear friends during my most massive breakdown over my birthday, <laughs> couple of weeks ago, promised me that we were about to embark on a very progressive decade. Um, and that, you know, those of us who have 
worked so hard to try to make that so can can rest easy in in a couple of years that we're on the right path. So we'll, let's we'll, do we'll it find together. Out, we'll find out soon. Catherine Gund is president of the board of directors at the Gund Foundation. She's a filmmaker as well. Her newest film, Aggie, is about her mother, and you can watch it at the Cleveland International Film Festival streaming service next week. Catherine Gund, thank you so much for being our guest at the City Club today. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been fun. It's been really fun. <laughs> and thank you to joining us for our Friday Forum as well. Fittingly, our forum today is the annual Sally Grease Endowed Forum in honor of women of achievement. Sally Grease is chair of the board at the Cleveland Foundation. Thanks also to members and sponsors and donors and many others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. You can find out more and join them at cityclub.org slash thank you. On Friday, September 25th, we will talk with Dr. Margaret O'Mara. Uh, she's author and professor at the University of Washington about how decisions being made by big tech companies may be indicators of what our lives will look like after the COVID-19 pandemic. There will be an after the COVID-19 pandemic. A couple of quick notes, too. Later this month, we're launching a project called Five Days for Democracy. It's a collaboration with the nine library systems in Cuyahoga County, inviting you to spend just a little bit of time each day for five days thinking about what democracy means to you. We hope you'll join us for that. You can check it out at cityclub.org slash five days. Also, last night, we launched a new video series called Democracy Unchained. The first episode featured conversations with David Brooks of The New York Times, former acting attorney general Sally Yates, Michael Eric Dyson, Van Jones, and many others. Find out more at democracyunchained.io. That's democracyunchained.io. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong, stay healthy, stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. And thank you for wearing a mask. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.